Welcome to this episode of the Betting Goods podcast. One of my aims has always been to interview the smartest young people I find, and today I have somebody who fits that bill. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Joshua Miller. Joshua is really smart, mostly because he's the only 16 now 17 year old market monetarist I know, and also because he has incredible takes on uh, on economics. So hi, Josh. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Pratty. Um uh yeah i'm excited to be here uh and you know talk about central banking macroeconomics um why the ecb is the scourge of humanity why you know <laughs> why and why europe has has totally uh destroyed our future <laughs> you know, you know yeah. fr- as we both know uh france caused the great depression yes yes we will get to that. But I mean, these are two little, little weird topics for two 17 year olds to be talking about. You know, yeah, if my if somebody comes and asks, well, what are you talking? Oh, so just central banking and nominal GDP targeting. But uh, my first question to you is, um, you call yourself a market monetarist. What does that mean and, and why? So market monetarism is essentially taking the uh, to me, at least, it's taking the precepts of of the classical monetarism of Milton Friedman, or I guess, I guess he call his more like orthodox or old monetarism. Classical monetarism is more like Irving Fisher, but that's like a slight distinction. Is taking the precepts of 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 his ideas was really that the central bank controls the money supply, um, money so quantity of money influences the uh, overall nominal output level of the economy. Uh, and yet, this, and the inflation and monetary phenomenon. Combining that, some of the later Chicago ideas, uh, such as um, rational expectations and the efficient market hypothesis, but keeping sticky prices. So what you have is a synthesis which says that central banks have in- almost instantaneous transmission uh, instead of what Milton Friedman thought, which was long and variable lags of transmission. And you, and you also have this idea that the nominal var- that inflation is a nominal variable. You also have uh, recessions as a nominal, sort of a nominal uh, effect. The primary cause of stabilization policy should be to stabilize the nominal output level or nominal spending level. And the way you have to do that is via monetary policy because uh, fiscal policy is a limited effect. So it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's sort of a practical updating of these classical ideas. There's not too many formal updates in the model. It still is a classical, still is a classic New Keynesian model. There's no... There's no specific model we have that makes us any different. I've worked on some stuff that makes us sort of different, but I've, I've come to a conclusion uh, with some, you know, prodding from our friend Trevor Chow. If, if you know him, he's a very, uh, he's an econ student at Cambridge. And we came to the conclusion that basically new Keynesian models sort of do all the we already need them to. Market monitors is more of a practical understanding of the way nominal income affects the economy. And, and then we try and apply it to uh, the creation of policy. So that's why we favor things like nominal GDP targeting uh, and you know quantitative easing things that would help us stabilize nominal output level. Okay. Um, a good question people ask is what's wrong with the current, I mean, the previous Fed, uh, Fed framework of saying, we're going to keep inflation at 2%. How is nominal GDP targeting superior to that? Well, the first, like most obvious difference is that, so under normal, normal circumstances, inflation and uh, nominal GDP targeting are the same underneath, like under demand shock, um, you know, under demand shock effects, basically that no matter if there's a demand shock, 
both positive and negative, inflation and nominal GDP targeting should respond exactly the same. But during a supply shock, nominal GDP targeting would have a prescription and inflation targeting wouldn't. But that's just about like a surface level difference. In reality, by targeting nominal GDP, we helped parse out the idiosyncrasies of real output and inflation in the short run. Because in, in the short run, both of those are just data points that can be sort of corrupted. By just targeting this overall pure nominal GDP level, we are able to stabilize the, out, the demand and output level of the economy a little bit more efficiently. Um, for example, in 2007, when the Fed kept rates high, uh, despite the uh, signs of faltering economy, they looked at inflation going high, but inflation was going high for a very transitory reason. That mistargeting would have been solved by just targeting nominal GDP. The same difference is like, uh, if, if, we are, if we were to go for something like level targeting as opposed to uh, you know, just targeting growth rates. Uh, it's it's about it's really about making um, making sure that our you know increase increasing the data don't actually affect our output in terms of policy. Okay. Um, the most the uh, the mechanism the um, NG, uh, NGDP, the market monetists want is that the Fed increase and decrease the monetary base, uh, which is commonly called M zero, right? But I have difficulty with I have some difficulty with this. Which is the first is that. Um, if you look for after the financial crisis, the Fed increased the monetary base by some 300 or 400 percent, but uh, inflation didn't really pick up that much. The um, the the other money supply aggregates M1, M2, and M3 didn't increase as much. So could you explain the um, the mechanism by which you you expect increases in base money to re result in higher money supply in, in higher M2 and M3, and why should that lead to a, to higher um, nominal in input and inflation later on? Well, I don't think that uh, any of us actually really expect to look at the monetary base anymore. Um, th th there's there's actually a whole debate in the monetary community about uh, whether we should use monetary base targeting or not, or looking at, mon look at monetary base. Um, I think that it's one of the things you can do, but the uh, but in terms of, in terms of the you know the post two thousand eight era, really since the two thousands, we're in this really 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 high money demand environment. I don't think we can reasonably expect the money multiplier to function as normal or the quantity effects to function as normal. So, given that reality, uh, I think it's better to just do what 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 market monitors have been doing since then, which is just looking at. Um, at, at money and inflation sort of as, sort of like semi-independently uh, like if you're paying it if you're if you've been paying uh, attention to what David Beckworth has been saying past couple of years and what he's especially what he's saying right now he likes to estimate money demand and money plus money the law uh, velocity sort of independently uh, of just a, as a residual by doing that he's able to figure out you know are we in this environment where uh, any sort of increase in the money supply, is either being quote unquote trapped within the balance sheet of banks or is being consumed by these excess real cash balances, these really high real cash balances, um, as opposed to, you know, under before the 2000s, this global growth uh, slowdown, we had a very, very tight quantity relationship. And this money multiplier relationship was also very, very tight despite the, you know, the whole presence of endogenous money, despite banks, of course, you know, produce, giving loans themselves, we had a very tight money multiplier effect and we had a very, very tight reserve. There's no such thing as excess reserves before 2000, you know, before 2008. After that, we're in this very different environment based on just money demand and the new rules, lack of reserve requirements, 
Uh, I don't think we should expect the mechanics of the monetary system to remain the same. That's why I'd much, much rather look at these really broad variables like M2, uh, which monetarists have been looking at for forever, uh, and, and using those to, to diagnose things, especially like M2 Divisia measures, because those Divisia measures also give us, give us a better sense of like, is the money actually being used in output? Is it actually, or is it just sort of just sitting around in these in these excess balances? Because if money is being hot potatoed away, it's being transferred between other people. That's what's going to push prices up. They're going to be bit up. But if it's just being held, then we're not going to have price increases. And we're in, we're in an environment where holding money is going to happen. Okay. Um, that I can agree with. That is, if the money is in what you call uh, real excess balances. But what I'm more concerned of is that the Fed has been doing QE for 12 years. And banks are simply just uh, stashing the money at the Fed in what you call excess reserves. Now, we can't compare the post-2008 to pre-2008, mostly because, one, the, the Fed is now allowed to pay interest on excess reserves when they weren't before. And second, because, because there were no excess reserves back then. What I'm most concerned about is the idea that the Fed is going to increase the monetary base, which is the only tool it, I mean, which is the, which is the tool it uses the most. The Fed is going to increase the monetary base and banks are simply not going to lend that money out. Well, I think it's where, when, when the monetary base is increased, it's, it's really the base of reserves that's increased. And then based on that, uh, banks will make loans. Uh, the issue is to me is that the sort of incentives banks have to make loans are a little bit different than they used to be. Uh, so interest in reserves, right, will mean that uh, the banks have a little bit less of an incentive to uh, to, uh, to make loans. Um, and I would, what I would do is I put a negative interest on reserves that would, I think that would create a, a greater intra, you know, greater environment for loans. But even past that, uh, I think that, you know, sort of looking at monetary base, I, and then, and then the, you know, the reserve multiplier effect, uh, as like not working sort of really does indicate instead of banks, just, you know, like quote unquote hoarding money, like, Remember, banks are the money creators in the economy. They're 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 gonna they're gonna make loans based on the environment. I think it's symptom of a greater cause, which is this extraordinarily high money demand environment, where uh, actual you know demand for you know where actual demand for for you know loans to build things, and that would you know that would source bank loans is probably pretty low. So it's really about expectations of future GDP that's too low, rather than having some sort of you know, uh, issue with the banks not making loans just because or because they're sort of, uh, you know, held to not doing that. Um, I really like that you mentioned expectations of future GDP. Are you in favor of a level target uh, for the Fed that that the Fed should say by X date, we're not going to let nominal GDP be below uh, some level? Would this improve the um, transmission of monetary policy and uh, get nominal GDP on a, on a higher path possible. Yeah. I'm, I'm in favor of the fed publishing a path for, for nominal GDP and saying, we're going to stick to this path. Um, that's, that's basically a level target, but it gives us a little bit of a range, a little more flexibility. The goal is to make sure that businesses understand how much cash uh, nominal cash flow is going to exist within the economy at any given date. Uh, because a, in my mind, when you have a decrease to uh, to expectations of nominal cash flow, you have a recession. 
Uh, and when you have an increase past uh, that in cash flow, that's when you have inflation. So, like, you know, given a secular growth rate that is relatively unchanged, because in my mind, capital stock and human capital, which is what's going to end in the overall labor force, which is going to what's, what's going to determine the whole, you know, output of the economy. Those don't just magically decrease. I'm sure they're pretty secular. They, they will only decrease, you know, in, in growth rate after a while of hysteresis. So what we're really, look, really looking at is just this nominal spending rate, expectation nominal spending, and then secular growth rate. If we're having, if, if the Fed wants to make sure we have no recessions in inflation, they should determine the secular growth rate and try and make sure nominal GDP ma- almost matches that secular growth rate. So we have minimal inflation and minimal, you know, recessions. And you could also make the argument that the Fed should have some level of inflation to grease the wheels of the labor market, quote unquote. So I think there's multiple equilibria here. You should the Fed should probably target one inflation rate that's consistent with a uh, certain zero acceleration of labor utilization, whatever that exists. Um, but the problem that happens here is that what if you have a large shock to real GDP? I mean, this probably works really well for for large economy with a large internal market like America, but for smaller countries, which um, which are more trade dependent or for economies that are more resource dependent, uh, w- wouldn't this be Im- improper for them? Or take, for example, COVID-19. I mean, it's very clear that, real, that the, the economy's real potential dropped around 20 to 25% in the first and second quarters of 2020. But if, but, um, if the Fed followed strict nominal GDP targeting, it would uh, it would involve setting an unrealistic nominal GDP t- t- target. Well, so in both scenarios, um, when you so when you have a positive GDP shock, uh, positive GDP shocks on their own decrease prices. Um, so when you're looking at nominal GDP, what you're what you're saying is uh, is like given a scenario where you're holding M V and uh, M and V constant. So you're, you're holding, say the Fed is perfectly targeting nominal GDP. So by targeting nominal GDP, they're adjusting monetary, the monetary, you know, the money supply and they're adjusting velocity. Um, and that, so that, in other words, that uh, they're, they're adjusting M and V, they're, they're those two inputs. If they're holding those constant uh, and you have a shock to Y, to real GDP, that means that P is going to decrease. So you, you, can, you solve it by you know, MV over Y. Um, that means that, if, if in America, say we had a big productivity increase, we'd have a lowering of the price level. That's very consistent with what George Selgin wrote about um, with the productivity norm or with you know less than zero. And really it's consistent with communicating that productivity is getting better means that all prices across the board should get lower. If having a great you know, productivity shock and communicating this decrease in prices overall uh, is actually pretty economic, economically beneficial as for communication of prices and the communication of what those prices imply. Uh, on the other hand, when you have a big um, GDP decrease, you if the Fed is perfectly targeting nominal GDP, yes, you will have excess inflation. But what that also means is that the nominal spending companies face is constant. In the short run, the economy is nominal. Uh, you know, co- uh, Companies spend nominal dollars, they pay their employees in nominal dollars. That's why the Phillips curve existed in the short run. Is because you're, when you're looking at it in the short run, 
you should see that a company uh, calculates its nominal balance sheet. They don't say justice for inflation. Let's look at our real balance sheet. There's money illusion in the short run, really. It comes down to money illusion. It comes down to businesses just seeing their normal nominal cash flow and keeping that constant, even if real output is dropping. And the goal is to keep that constant until the recessionary shock subsides. Uh, in terms of uh, what would happen during COVID-19, if we had had nominal GDP targeting, we would have been able to adjust completely for the supply shock. Uh, there wouldn't have, there would have been even less of a recession than there was. The recession we had was pretty was pretty minor. Now we would have still had the same sort of hysteresis problem and issue of getting people back to work. But uh, really, where nominal GDP targeting you know sort of matters to me is with this sort of demand shock regime. But even under supply shock, like as I said, in th in theory, just looking at an ADAS model, uh, nominal GDP targeting. You know, it protects for AS shifts and inflation targeting doesn't protect for AS shifts. Now, you could argue that you want to demonstrate the power of recessions by, you know, by not trying to, you know, sort of quote unquote cover them up. But I, I would say that for, in terms of welfare, keeping normal spending together for a short run, even if there's a little bit of excess inflation, is probably good. You mentioned we, we were talking about COVID 19. Uh, how do you rate Chairman Powell's and the FOMC's uh, response to the crisis? Uh, I'm going to give them like an eight or a nine. They're very good. Probably the best we've ever had to a crisis other than maybe Chairman Volcker uh, in, the, in the 80s. Um, I don't, what's great about Powell is that I don't think he's caused any issues. Uh, he's just made things better. He might have done something sort of wrong in 2018 if those rate hikes, but he corrected them. Uh, unlike with like someone like Bernanke, who I think had a very good response uh, back in 2009, 2010, 2011, but he also sort of caused the recession itself. A lot of the time, the Fed is both the cause and the solution of these problems. Uh, but I think with Powell, especially because well, I guess I guess he's kind of lucky because he's dealing with a you know a, a supply shock crisis, which isn't his fault, and was dealing with a favorable sort of recovery when he first got into office. Uh, but he's been doing very well uh, as a, as Fed chairman. I, I'm excited to see what he does, and I hope I hope that Biden renominates him uh, because I think he's been very responsible. Um, and he, and he's also paying attention to the labor market for the first time in a while, which is uh, pretty great. Okay. Um, one of the arguments you, I mean, I broadly agree with what you said there, but my main argument against, I mean, a very minor subset of the Fed's crisis response was that they backstopped um, corporate bonds and not all of them were um, the highest quality. So, so my biggest concern was that the Fed was stepping in too much into these um, the economy allocation problems. It's perfectly fine for them to buy treasuries and boost the money supply. But the moment you start shifting between sectors of the economy saying sector A should have higher credit, sector B should have higher, you 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 enter a sort of sense, I mean, I mean, in some sense, central banking is central planning, but this is a more dangerous sort of uh, central planning. The the kind of one uh, practiced by the emerging economies of Japan and Korea in the 60s, where, where you um, lend to, we lend against some sectors and don't lend to, to others. Did you see that as a, as a problem? So it depends on the way those bonds are being bought and for why. So, yeah, it could be an issue like it was in 2008 where the Fed said that we're going to offer really good credit to these failing companies, but sort of tighten credit to every other company. But if the Fed is just trying to boost the money supply and they're mass buying these available bonds just in order uh, just to have another sort of asset to swap with because they 
they, I don't say they ran out of treasuries, but it, it was it was the most optimal thing for them to do was was quantitative easing. Um, if they're if they're just buying them as an available asset, I don't really see that as central planning at least explicitly. Um, and I don't worry about um, and I don't really worry about the sort of like you know boosting the companies which having other bonds are being bought from because at the end of the day the goal is to boost forward guidance for everybody. And so what the what the Fed the Fed is doing is benefiting the whole economy. Uh, and I don't I don't really worry about you know junk bonds or high yield bonds or whatever sort of uh, asset that's being bought by the Fed is gonna you know be sort of planned out. Um, like the bank what the Bank of Japan do, has done on the other hand, I, I don't say it worries me, but it does seem sort of after a while that they're just kind of it, it might be too much for them to handle. The handle so the, the Bank of Japan owns so much of the Japanese economy. I don't really know what the path out for it is. Uh, but Japan, on the other hand, like Japan sort of dem- demonstrated to us what really happens when you have these recessions caused by these really long secular dec- declines in productivity and in, 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 you know, and in a overly tight housing market and other things like that. Uh, and I think in America, we're, we're going to have, because of our, our population growth and because of our technological success, we're going to be able to avoid having to have a central bank that supports the economy in a way that's so extreme, but in Japan, they still need it. Uh, And it's, it's, you know, it it really is taking a while. It's taking so long um, for them to get back on their feet because they're sort of stuck between this devil's choice of, do we have this really, really aggressive and asset buying central bank or do we stick with no growth and deflation? Uh, and I mean, I would much rather take the, the former choice than the latter. Mm-hmm. Um, when people study macroeconomics, they run into really important questions. A quote by Robert, by, by Robert Lucas Jr. goes something on the lines of the consequences are off for human welfare are so massive that when, you, that when you start thinking of them, you can't think of anything else. Why did you uh, first start um, to learn macro? So... I mean, I, that, that, by the way, that, that Lucas quote's one of my favorites, and I kind of cite it as the reason why I continue to learn macro. But I first started learning macro because I wanted to answer this one question I had, which is why can the Fed just print money uh, and give it out? Like, why, why is that okay? Why want to cause inflation? And then I, that's why I started with quantity theory and I started with theories of money demand. I started with Milton Friedman and I looked at, well, if he says inflation is a monetary phenomenon, why is it a monetary phenomenon right now? I found that, that he was still right, just that go to apply theories in a different way, especially this unique set of data after dealing with in the 2000s, 2010s. And then I kind of moved on from there. I got into institutional uh, analysis at things that Darren Asimoglu, uh, what, he, what he writes about. And so then, so I sort of came together. I had sort of in this idiosyncratic view of what, what causes growth. It's institution structure of ideas in the economy. What causes, you know, what drives macro. It's, uh, it's you know, money supply, nominal spending. Uh, and then I've kind of been going from there. Those are my two main areas of interest. I've sort of been branching out more into thinking about questions of price theory because quantity theory in Freeman's view is in front of price theory. And I've sort of also been considering questions of things like mechanism design because mechanism design is actually really entwined in economic growth because it's sort of, it's your method of building these aggregate idea levels and productivity levels. Um, and like the solo Romer model where you have both capital and ideas increasing I think that if you wanted to build a really advanced model, you'd have a mechanism design micro foundation for the idea section. Um, and then I'd use price theory for the capital section. Uh, and that would be like you know, the, the the ultimate Chicago style growth model. Which <laughs> never, and Chicago never did the growth model. 
uh, too strongly. I guess Lucas did, but we were we were always a business cycle community um, in terms of like you know Chicago school. So it'll be interesting to take a look at something like that. I I would I I would characterize myself as an economics skeptic. Not that I don't believe in it. But just that I, t- I take the models with a, with, a, with a little bigger pinch of salt than most people you like like you and people we know do. Mostly because not because I think the models are wrong or, or you can't model things like the Austrians, but I find the entire notion of we will model the economy without um, looking at specific micro level data. The, the, the best example of this is, um, I forgot which is name, Emi Nakamura, who, who went to uh, census microfilms in, uh, for how prices increased in the 70s. But as far as I know, and I think Alan Blinder had a paper where he actually measured wage stickiness. But as far as I know, besides a few examples here and there, macro economists don't um, go look for these, go, don't go look for data that's on this edge of micro and, and macro. And I'm a lot more re- reluctant to believe these models because of that. Because, you know, I, I too can dream up a, a theory with the fanciest micro foundations, but um, the first thing that testing with, uh, with, with GDP, which is GDP and, and inflation and, and whatever variables that come out of a flawed measurement process and come out only four times a year is, is going to be a lot worse than, uh, than, than looking at these, at these data points that, that of, for example, Alan Blinder's wage stickiness or, um, uh, or Emi Nakamura's the, um, sorry, the uh, prize it, stickiness. It was the slope of the Phillips curve paper, right? I I'm, I don't remember the paper, but I remember the one where she used got, the, the the state lines to calculate um, the Phillips curve. No, it I, it was a paper which calculated rise stickiness during the Great Inflation of the of the seventies. Yeah, that's a twenty yeah twenty seventeen paper she wrote with Stein. Yeah, yeah, my my main problem of macro is that there isn't more of this stuff, and and there's too much of uh. Let me think of these micro foundations and build this model. Well, I, I would agree with your criticism. Uh, I myself, I'm a, I call myself a Marshallian. I like partial equilibrium analysis. This is very Freeman, by the way. I like mm-hmm. partial equilibrium analysis and a lot more data, and then using data to build your instruments, and then using your instruments to test the data again. So I'm an instrumentalist. What I want to do is I want to build these partial equilibrium models that are sort of simple and just use them to apply to these uh, to our data sets to figure out to parse out the problems. This is what Freeman did for his consumption function. This is what Freeman did for his. Um, for his monetary history. Uh, and this is also sort of what they did in those Nakamura papers. Now, Nakamura and Steinstein, I think, are probably the best macroeconomists on the planet right now. Um, <laughs> and uh, I know uh, I know uh, a lot of people would agree with me, but it's also, like, and Steinstein wrote a whole thing on this recently. It is one thing to, to, to sort of say, right now we're undergoing a revolution in macroeconomics. We're going back towards instrumental and uh, experimental analysis of using a lot more data, but we only got here because we actually had to go through this phase where we had used a lot of theory. Like Robert Lucas in his Lucas critique helped make sure that a lot of our data, which we did beforehand in macro was actually going to be accurate. So we needed to have a Lucas critique period. We needed to have this period where we went for the Lucas critique and we had guys like Ed Prescott who was like, okay, let's skip the whole data thing. Uh, we needed that to happen to sort of purge us of the sins of bad data. Just like microeconomics had its credibility revolution, back in the 80s and now they're in the super applied empirical macro phase we're going to get to empirical macro only by going through this super uh, skeptical phase where we 
make sure we test our data rigorously using Lucas critique and we sort of skip do theory before measurement just to avoid this fault of bad data. And, you know, and we're pretty great at theory in, in macro, frankly. And there's a lot of great macro theory out there that starts in different angles. Now we're just going to have to worry about getting that to this sort of hard to parse data, but we're going to be able to do it because we have tools like the Lucas critique underneath our belt. We have Martiali and while raising an analysis, we have tons of different methods we can use. Uh, just like, just like micro has, you know, decision uh, theory, it has price theory, game theory, and it has, you know, um, and also it will have things like mechanism design. Uh, macro is going to have partial equilibrium, general equilibrium analysis. We're going to have structural models, models of micro foundations, model just use aggregate variables. We're going to have tons of ways to do this. Uh, you know, new Keynesian models, Hank and DSGE, which will give us different results occasionally. We're going to have all these different ways to, to you know, to parse out macroeconomic questions. Uh, we can run with real and nominal. Uh, but I think we only really can get there by going through this like sort of skeptical of data phase, which we have to go through, which is that this 80s, 90s, early 2000s macro phase. My first thing I want to say is that you're the only person I know who is so excited about these. I'm so happy to see that because, because, because there's somebody apart from me. Uh, my second question is, you're, you're a big fan of Milton Friedman. What do you think, which, which economic opinion of his do you think he got wrong the most? I'll start. I think Friedman's... Um, logic on against the against the anti-discrimination portions of the uh, anti-racial discrimination portions of, of the civil rights act was was at best flawed at worst horribly wrong mostly because his logic was that um if somebody discriminates against a customer or in employment they lose the opportunity of uh, hiring that person but i think what we see in the in the in the in the in the, in the real world is that this is typically not an economic decision, and it's driven by um, by social preferences. And so, what what happens? The only way to solve this is not the free market of of um, it, the way to solve it is not by telling people, "Hey, you could have a cheaper price by uh, hiring this minority," but rather by by changing people's minds uh, in either via government coercion or um, Less violently in the in the uh, in the forms of what the civil rights movement did. And this is a very niche example. But what do you think Friedman got wrong? Well, so yeah, obviously, I, I think that would be a, a political opinion of his, but I definitely think he got that wrong. I think that goes to a little bit more of a broader point, which he sort of got wrong, which is when he when he when he did price theory. And I think a lot of a lot of that opinion came from price theory, came with this expectation mm -hmm. that it was. Uh, actually beneficial to be non-discriminatory. He sort of forgot institutional analysis of this price theory, that if you understood the institutions of the South at the time, you would have understood that you know, there's these massive barriers to you know this, this optimal outcome, which he was looking for, which is no discrimination via the free market. Uh, in fact, if you look at James Heckman, which is one of his greatest students, had a paper where he sort of figured out you needed the Civil Rights Act to have a higher employment rate of African-Americans in the South because because there was these institutional barriers you really had to get past, um, I think Freeman would have changed his mind had he saw the paper. I don't even, I don't really know what his comments were later on about that. Um, but I think economically, his probably his greatest flaw was he looked at the money supply in a flawed way. He thought that there was a a long and variable lag in monetary transmission, and he also I think he uh, didn't really understand. Uh, like the the actual flow like flow of money like he sort of like I think it was good that he used M two 
But I think uh, when he looked at M2, he expected it to be a little bit more like closely correlated. Uh, and it didn't really understand M2 was also just a communication tool. Um, although, I mean, there was other times where he would, where he understood M2 perfectly, understood money demand perfectly. But I think sometimes he would mess up with his understanding of the way money moved in the economy and uh, things like monetary transmission timing. Um, I, we get the, we get a nice part where, where we rate uh, central bankers. I'm going I'm going to exclude uh, Jerome Powell and Janet Yellen because I don't think the effects can be seen completely as of now. But across the developed world, who do you think are the best and worst central bankers? Um, well, actually, I am going to say that I think we can rate Yellen. Uh, Yellen is a I think Yellen's a good six. I think Yellen messed up pretty badly in in with raise of the raising rates mm-hmm. in uh, in 2014 mm-hmm. but she also had a pretty strong reaction function um or somebody who actually calculated the reaction functions of all central bankers and found that she would have been a little bit looser than powell was under covid uh so that's interesting to, uh, to know uh ben bernanke is also a six he's caused the 2008 recession but he also solved it pretty well he solved it as well as he could have expected to and he also had a lot of um, a lot of gaps between him and, and making sure the recession didn't happen because he, the FOMC at the time was very hawkish and was going to cause recession regardless of him. Uh, Mario Drahi is a, is a seven. Uh, I think he kept the euro alive, which is good, but I also am not a fan of the euro, so yeah. that's good. Um, and uh, and that was, a, I mean, he was, he was pretty effective in that regard. Um, now, the guy who uh, came before him, the... European Central Bank leader in uh, 2011. I forget their name, but they get a one because they plunged Europe into a recession not once but twice in a three-year period uh, and permanently lowered Europe's secular growth rate, which is a pretty difficult thing to do. Uh, They managed to figure out a way to completely trash Europe's economy. Uh, So I don't know, props to them. Uh, I guess um, some other central bankers, I think all all the leaders of the Bank of England uh, since the mid-2000s have been like a good solid eight. Uh, England's done fairly well, like in terms of central bank policy, especially like Mark Carney's a nine. Mark Carney's a good guy. Um, uh, and he, he's, he's very easy, and he's easily, in both his performance in Canada and the United and the United Kingdom, easily one of the best central bankers ever exist. Uh, I'm going to say all the central bankers of the Bank of China are zeros because capital controls uh, I am a, I am a fan of not fixing interest rates and not fixing capital supply, but I think they would uh, disagree with me. Um, leaders of the Bank of Japan, uh, I think just for the sheer sort of cojones they have to, to try what they've done, uh, good all all get sevens since mm-hmm. the, since the they started their you know their massive asset buying programs. Yeah, sort of trying so much quantitative easing. Like I would I would not have had the uh, guts to do that if I wasn't leader and it's just started buying everything basically i think, I think uh, kuroda gets a little higher there because after abe was elected in 2013 they went on this huge qe spree and then prices momentarily went up to like one and a half percent i don't know what happened but they stopped after that and all kuroda and abe were like worked really well together very like abe brought the fiscal policy kuroda brought the monetary policy i think they, they, they worked pretty well together um they, they had to be a little more consistent about it. Um, 
Now, the good thing is that Abe could be more consistent because he had such a tight political control. Actually, it'd be very interesting to see that if the current prime minister of Japan um, is continuing to get a little bit, you know, he's continuing to be unpopular. If he's so unpopular, is are, are there going to be, you know, bad prospects for Japanese fiscal policy in the uh, next couple of years? That could happen. Um, speaking of central bank treasury coordination, do you think that it would be that if that okay first of all uh do you what do you think is the main flaw with modern monetary theory because if i understand correctly you are you do not think that it is that it is a is an accurate description of the world so to me modern monetary theory what's true in it isn't original to it and what's original in it isn't true so first the government does not fund itself via seniorage less than 0.5 percent of the government is funded via seniorage so that's just completely wrong um now, on the other hand, if the government was funded via seniorage, that'd be kind of interesting and kind of awesome. Uh, but se- secondly, the uh, their implication that there is that neo-fisherism is you know true in the short run is completely and utterly false by any sense of the word. Um, also, they they sort of conceive of taxes as having this anti-inflationary effect. No, they have an anti-price level effect, not an anti-inflationary effect. Um, past that. Uh, they're, you know, they're also fiscal theory at the price level. Uh, I think they misunderstand the role of government bonds uh, in determining the price level. Uh, they also fail to understand the importance of the money supply as a monetary and nominal tool uh, to for determining the paths of spending in the economy. Um, they also seem to imply that a lot that whatever spending programs that they dream of are going to be like anti-inflationary, which is just not true. Um, like if we can do the other, it's not going to be anti-inflationary. There are all their jobs programs. And then past that, they also seem to embrace this view that the jobs guarantee will not cause inflation, but UBI magically will because, you, God forbid, people can spend money the way they want to spend money, um, which is they, they kind of pull out a hat. Um, you know, like I actually on my wall, I have a little tweet pinned where uh, Stephanie Kelton, she says, have you considered the possibility that raising rates might move inflation right, right. higher? And then Jason uh, Jason Furman just like, responds, "No, it's just this is sitting on my sitting on my wall." I, I have a couple. I have to add more tweets to my wall, but I have a couple of tweets I like on my wall. Another one is um, uh, Jason Furman said, "You agree, e-girl monetarism," and it was just I had to capture that moment because uh, a lot of times like. You know, professionals in this, in this in, 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 you know, on Twitter will just not read the ads of people they're talking to, not understand the ads. Uh, right. also had a, I also have a tweet from Claudia Sand that says, Friedman in his scholarship was a huge contributor to economics. Sadly, students were not as good and didn't even understand his work and his policy work was bad. It's just something I sort of agree with, so I put that up there. Um, just, just like the statement of it, they didn't understand his work, which is sort of true, because I think Robert Lucas not using sticky wage models was a big mistake. Uh, and sort of set macro back, even as much as he pushed it forward. Speaking of Twitter, um, what do you think has been your biggest learning from this, from the crazy end of the internet? Uh, friends of mine are scared to join Twitter because they're like, oh, there are too many, uh, it's too, it's, there are too many crazy people on that on that site. Um, well, I just ignore the crazy people on the site. I, when I'm on Twitter, I talk to the smart people and I listen to the smart people. I listen to people who, first of all, like the only person I, I really listen to who's like, anonymous fully anonymous uh is like mamba who's just a guy in one of our group chats who's like a former you know former uh economic student 
uh, who understands micro pretty well. Uh, but like on that, if you want to, if you want to go on the internet, you want to talk economics um, on Twitter. There are tons of people who are just professionals in it, and they go to talk for the professionals and on Twitter. Just got to block all the crazy people. You're gonna meet some crazy people uh, who go to like fight economics Twitter. You're like, haha, I'm a communist. I'm gonna go yell at the economics people, but just block them. The block button exists. My block list is immense, uh, and I don't, I don't care. Um, you know. Yeah. It, 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 you just gotta you gotta avoid the crazies and you can't avoid the crazies just by you know sticking with the people who if, if my, my rule is would i read this person's work if they were on twitter and if the answer is yes and i'll follow them i'll talk to them uh, why uh, why do you use your real name why aren't you anonymous or pseudonymous uh, because i want to be able to uh, i want to be able to tie my economics views to myself and i'd like to you know to be, be viewed sort of as a member of the economics community on twitter I don't worry that like I, I I'm not a weirdo on Twitter, so I don't really worry about it like hurting my prospects in the future. Because as something goes to my Twitter history, the vast majority of what I'm talking about is uh, nominal GDP targeting or Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, so <laughs> I don't I don't see any potential employer will, will uh, be upset about that. Um, but also, it's kind of nice to like you know have these like sort of you know these economics internet friends and sort of like yourself be like oh yeah I I, I understand what the community is like because I'm sort of like. You know, I, I can talk to all these grad students and get some advice from them or whatever. Yeah, it's 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 sort of weird because if my mom ever asked me what does that globe emoji mean, I have to go through this history of explaining to her what all the emojis mean. Yeah, I use a lot of emojis in my name now. I just don't do the emojis anymore because I mean they're too much of a hassle. It's like if although I I will still maintain that I will never follow a person with a sock in their name because they just would inimically annoy me. Uh, I mean. <laughs> It's a it's talk Twitter is easily it's talk Twitter if you don't know is a, is social democratic Twitter so it's like but they're really just democratic socialists they happen to democratic in quotes yeah, democratic <laughs> they're really they, they have an authoritarian streak but they, they tend to be very young and pretty left wing even for the label uh so they're just best to avoid uh because all, all like the four or five like people with sock in their name who are fun to talk to uh have taken it out of their name um. Getting to personal questions, are you still anti-fun now? Um, no, no, the anti-fun thing is the gag. So I have a gag on Twitter, which is anti-fun. Mm. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't like fun, uh, or or like I, I every once in a while I'll tweet that out. <laughs> I, I'm I'm like actually pro fun, but I always like to I always like to remind people uh, that that there's somebody out there who unironically holds the hate funds views. Like I want to I want to sort of betray myself every once in a while. It's like a really stoogy character from <laughs> from like a Disney movie where like, I hate everything, you know, I love nothing but <laughs> but central banking. Uh, like I think, I think honestly, I should probably set up an alt just like a stodgy central bank, banking character where I was probably like, I hate fun. Fun in my mind is inflation targeting. Uh, <laughs> it's simple to solve for. Uh, no, f- fun is good. Although I, I <laughs> say it's kind of funny. I've been building this utility model for the, um, the consumption function recently and I just forgot to include leisure in it so I have to go, like, go back and include <laughs> leisure in the model because otherwise the model predicts that you'd work like 24 hours a day <laughs> and just never sleep and I have to include like you must sleep like, yeah I think I wrote like make the assumption that all humans must sleep at least four hours to not instantaneously die <laughs> <laughs> no no it, it it reminds me of this joke when a few a few uh, mathematicians um made a COVID-19 model and they didn't assume people that, that people went to any parties and somebody was like obviously the, the the mathematicians didn't assume any 
parties in, in the COVID-19 model. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you mean people <laughs> attend parties? What are these parties? Are, yeah, um, exactly. There's exactly. an old onion video where it's like NASA scientists uh, plan on approaching girl by 2026. They have like a 16 year plan to like approach a girl and ask her to dinner. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's a shame because most of the people I know on Twitter, including you, the group chats, and people outside, are incredibly smart people. But they get, but it's it's this common feature of nerds to get sucked into into something. I can do that. I spend I spend like four days reading about the gold standard and. I would not go out of the room and I was like, come out of the room. We, we want to talk to you. And it's, 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 it's nice to have that, that obsession, but I don't know, taken in excess, it, it, it could be destabilizing. Yeah. Well, I think the, the, the trick is to be at like a university when you do that, because universities sort of meant to give you this like really awesome balance of research and social life. We're sort of integrated together. Like you're going to have friends who are interested in the exact same thing as you at your university. And you're going to research the topic together. You're going to discuss it together. And that's meaningful social time. You're, you're even, even your super nerdy friends at university are also going to have parties together, which is important because mm-hmm. it helps, you know, it helps to fulfill all the other social sides. Uh, that's why university is sort of intriguing to me. Dorm structures are sort of intriguing to me as a lifestyle because it gives you this very interesting balance of work and interaction that you can't find anywhere else. Like other than like I don't know some like weird like sort of like a writer's commune or an artist commune, it's like an economist commune. No, I, <laughs> guess I, is that, I guess that's like the the basement of the NY Fed. Yeah, I I've a I've a I I know somebody who works the Fed, and I'm I'm pretty sure they spend their, their entire day talking to other people about monetary policy and the 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 other in, interest in whatever. And I'm and I and I fear for their sanity because like in their dreams they're gonna have a dream that the, the real interest rate hit minus two hundred percent and the world's gonna explode. <laughs> I I once had a dream that uh, I I like. Just I was like in a car of Ben Bernanke and there was a meteor coming at us, right? And the first thing he says to me is that the Wixellian rate must be minus 1,000% right now. And then he just crashes the car and I wake up. It was a, it, I, I've had, I never really dream that often. Every once in a while, like I'll notice like a Twitter thing or an economics thing in my dream. I'll be like, oh God, what's happening to myself? What am I doing? <laughs> Why is, uh, I, had a, I always had a dream where if you know who Greg Kelly is, mm-hmm. uh, I, there, he was just in there like and i he was like i could like sort of hear his tweets um you oh, know greg, greg kelly is an, greg kelly is an interesting guy i still can't figure out if he's unironic or not he's a, uh, he's but, a tv host right yeah i talk as a tv host but like man he he tweets some i, I still love where he's like uh where, he, where he's like i will defend obama's birthday party and he was like one of those whole tirades like obama had a great birthday party i'm like what, what is, like it was just it was really funny to me uh, if you if you didn't go into go to economics, what would you be doing? Um, if I didn't do economics uh, or you know, I'm gonna say if I extend that to public policy. Yeah. If I didn't do economics or public policy, I would probably do law. Um, if I didn't do law, I don't really know what I'd do. I guess I'd be like a professional dungeon master uh, <laughs> slash a professional dungeon master slash uh, death metal singer because I can do those two things fairly well. Uh, but I, I don't know, like. I mean, I, like if I didn't, if I couldn't go into academic economics, I'd definitely go into a quantitative finance because if I couldn't have academia, I could at least have money. If I couldn't do that, then I'd go into like working for the Fed because at least I could have public policy. And if I didn't do that, I don't know, I'd go into 
corporate law would <laughs> be boring. Right, right. Uh, yeah. Corporate law. It's like quantitative finance, but worse. <laughs> uh, I thought you said constitutional law was pretty interesting, uh, but I'm tired of the Supreme Court and the shenanigans. So, yeah. uh, I, in my mind, law should be entirely governed by money. This, that, I don't think that, but there are there are some there, there are some weird narrative time, arguments right, about right, right. making uh, privatizing a weird amount of the stuff. Like, uh, for example, lawsuits. Why do they take so long? <laughs> can't you just sit? Why can't you just have Coasian bargaining? We should just put you in a room with a hologram of Ronald Coase and he helps get you to a bargain. Mm, I I I think you should run for president after you get after you turn thirty five. I can't vote, but I get all my American friends to. Yeah, uh, the Ronald uh, the Coase party. Um, please restore frictionless bargaining to all the United States <laughs> so we can solve our problems together. For example, white nationalists, we could just sort of pay them to like not talk at all. We can pay them a little bit and then they wouldn't talk. That's that's quality bargaining. It solves our problems. I I wouldn't actually endorse the proposal, but but <laughs> actually it would be interesting if like if we started looking through all social ills as like a failure of quasi bargaining. I don't know how much how accurate that would be, but we could look at that as like a friction, you know, too much friction sort of environment. No, I because uh, you know money makes the world go round. Yeah, my 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 only opinion is that too much of something is bad and especially people with with you know the the hammer nail analogy or once you have a hammer everything looks looks like a nail and the problem with the institutional economist is like there's a famous Robert Solo quote and it's, which I won't mention here because it's this is a PG podcast but um but then uh, they they see a problem, bang, institution, bang, institution, and that's true for like ninety nine percent of people. Wait, is the Robert Solar the, the, yeah, the one? Yeah, I'm thinking yeah. of the one where it's like Milton Friedman, Milton Friedman thinks Milton. out the money supply way too oh, often. Yeah, 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 that one, that one, that one. <laughs> I still, I still love how uh, how Friedman baited Robert Solo into saying that. Uh, Robert Solo, in all honesty, is one of those interesting guys, and I, I you know, he's still alive. Yeah. Like, I, 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 it's 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 one of him. I was like, he's not like he still he still does economics. Like, he's sort of like the Kissinger of economics, but exactly. I mean, he was obviously it's bad. Um, <laughs> like, Solo he makes up this really important growth model, obviously, but he also does some like really terrible stuff, like Keynesian economics, where he's like, this is the Philip curve. It is always true, and then <laughs> they had to we had to spend like twenty years just saying, like, no, it's it's just it's obviously not. Um, you know. <laughs> It's, it's 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 very obviously it was not true because uh, it it broke down after like ten years. Actually, there's this really funny um Irving Fisher paper where he wrote this paper. He said I discovered the Phillips curve. That was the, that was the title of the paper, and he's like A. W. Phillips said it. I did, and he stole it from me. He said my I was correct about it, and he was wrong about it. Fisher yeah. was correct about it. Fisher was Fisher was was weird. It's 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 all like well, you know, both both Samuelson. Both Samuelson and Friedman father Fisher was the greatest economist of the 20th century. Okay, that's that's their problem. No, but uh, <laughs> more seriously, I, I find Fisher weird because your legacy as a public in, uh, intellectual is is somehow limited to, to, to the worst quote you can make. So people are still stuck with Fisher's 1929 stock market plateau quote. And then I, my, the only thing I learned from Fisher was that always, always, um, don't say anything stupid in public or uh, 120 years later some guy's gonna say Pradyumna Prasad said this and the exact opposite happened so never hear any, any, anything else he says 
even but but otherwise he actually understood the cause of the great yeah, depression exactly, more than anybody exactly. else at the time he understood the dynamics and the money supply unfortunately it was literally hidden like they, they hid the whole money supply thing um the dynamics of the gold standard uh but you know fisher's fisher to me was sort of like the like you need fisher and Keynes together you get friedman and then that's how you sort of save that era of macroeconomics because Fisher solved the things that, Free- that Keynes got wrong, and Friedman understood both of them very well and put them together. Uh, and that's why we have monetarism, and that's why we have the Keynesianism, and that's why you're not stuck with hydraulic Keynesianism or we're not stuck with whatever AC Pygow thought um, or, or say thought, really. Yeah. AC Pygow actually had a, had a very, very, you know, he, he made it the Cambridge model, mm-hmm. and the Cambridge model is actually very useful because it's your demand side model, understanding the way real cash balances work. Mm-hmm. Uh, gives you a lot of insight into the hot potato effect and how the actual transmission of, of inflation works. My uh, last question to you is, if you could recommend one death metal band to our listeners, what would it be? <laughs> okay, this is a big one. Uh, okay, my death metal band is probably uh, Insomnium. They're this Finnish band. Mm-hmm. Um they're 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 very tactical and they they're a very sort of like symphonic and soulful music they their instrumentals really what brings me to them um but like if i had to say like yeah you should try definitely once in your life try them because they're probably the most appealing because i think they're the best mm. making it into an art form they're not just brutality um <laughs> oh it's just like it's, it's fun every once in a while to go listen to somebody who's just sort of like like a guy who's like you know just going like gorilla on the on drums and just destroying a drum set and a guy is screeching in the microphone but that's yeah. every once in a while you want you want you know something with melody a lot of melody there's one song name is everyone you know otherwise yeah uh actually i use I, I listen to a lot of like the heaviest stuff when i'm studying because i'll see focus a little more because i don't have to like listen to anything else or like you know drowns it like the like because like my brain tends to like defocus a lot and be like okay well uh, have you considered this? I'm like, well, I'm doing my math homework, right? I don't want to uh-huh. talk about my English homework right now. And then, you know, if listen to death metal, it's like, no, you're going to listen to the drums and your <laughs> math homework. That's it. No, I've, somebody I know called it caveman music. And <laughs> I would, actually, I would it is kind that. of funny that the, like the loudest part, which is the drums tar- uh, part. Um, like, I think extreme metal has the best drumming of any genre because we're the ones who've advanced it the most. Right? Like the other genre of like focuses on, making your drummers go as fast or as polyrhythmically as we do. But otherwise, yeah, I mean, there is this sort of element of like primal, uh, primalism. In fact, it sort of goes to like a broader, I'm going to make a broader point here. Um, I think one of the issues, is, and I don't want to sound, I don't want to sound trad right here, but there was a, this issue in society that we're losing a sense of primalism. Uh, now we're, we're pretty well evolved to live in human society, but like, I think, I think I sort of agree with like Ernst Jünger thought that, you know, unless we have war or nature, there is some part, especially of the young per, young male, that's sort of like, you know, it's lost and it's and it's it's, it's driven to outward aggression and evil. Uh, so, like, and we could we could drive that part of ourselves to do great things, uh, but we have to like be sort of wary that a large part of the population, like a lot, a lot of part, large part of young men, have this like untoward aggression, which toxic, toxic masculinity that isn't employed in its traditional uses. It has to be like you know made where we have to be made wary of it. Uh, that's why I would encourage like you and know, your solution to that is core. to get people to, to beat drums. I mean, come on, have a sense yeah. of perspective. There's there's yeah. nothing that 
there's nothing that beats screaming at people on the internet yeah yeah see, see <laughs> the sole course of our internet trolls is a uh, that fact if we had wars we wouldn't have trolls you know that's <laughs> if the I mean, trolls went outside and touched grass we wouldn't have trolls anymore uh i i, I disagree i think i'd make a, i think i'd make a good troll and i spend plenty of time outside my house well, well, like you know, it depends. Like, what types of trolling like exists? Like, like I think you and I were trolling Larry Summers. It's not a not the same as like the average trolling. Uh, yeah. But also, like I guess in general, like one of the issues we see is that we have a lot of. There's actually a pretty decently high unemployment rate amongst young men. Why is that? I think it's because the traditional employers are sort of unsatisfying to these parts of them that aren't you know, being put in touch with modern society. Now, on one hand, obviously, we don't want, we don't want war in modern society, and we don't want this, like, you know, extensive nature. But there has, be, there has to be another use. I think that another use is probably, um, I think, putting that sort of use into a Nietzschean use, like, of, of, like, art and research and science is pretty useful. And if we figure out a way to um, build a public education system, build an educational system that helps employ this, like, youthful energy into science and into art we'll be a lot better off as society not only because we have those science and art but also because we're reducing this like simmering aggression in society but most people aren't really interested in in, in science or art I, I well the goal is to get them inter- interested in using uh, monetary incentives we just we just give a universal basic income to people who are scientists next time i do a podcast with you i'll I'll probably we'll probably spend hours talking about UBI. But on that note, I will I will I will end this. It's been great talking to you. It's been it's been you great talking well, yeah. to somebody who's as passionate about this as as I am. And people get weirded out when I talk with so much with, with so much interest. But you're not that way, so uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, trust me. My school is uh my school sort of understands. Do not approach Josh about monetary issues. He's gonna <laughs> unravel. <laughs> Uh, you, you know, I, I try, I try and uh, obscure my love of the Federal Reserve. Although I have a, I have a Federal Reserve sweatshirt now. So in the middle of winter, I'm gonna pull into a class and be like, "Hello, ladies, Hi. are you just in the Federal Reserve Economic Database of which I have access to and which I have uh, spent over 40 hours uh, just staring at over the course of like last month?" Yeah, I can, I can, I can, I can, I can see you doing that. For the sake of our sanity, I will not comment on the success rates of it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah great talking to you you too